2: Hey guys, you're now listening to the Coaches Network podcast, a podcast aimed at anyone who's passionate about athlete, talent, and personal development. My name's Coach Yas, and I'm a UEFA licensed football coach, coach developer, and content creator. I'll be sitting down with a range of guests to discuss their journeys, their life lessons, and how you can make an impact. Enjoy. Right, guys, welcome back to the Coaches Network. My name's Coach Yas, and I've got a very special guest with me today. My guest this morning is Peter Prickett. How are you, Pete.
3: I'm good, thanks. How are you doing?
2: Very well, thank you, Pete. Thank you for joining me. Um, Pete, just before we get started, for those who are maybe not familiar with yourself or even are, maybe just give us a little bit, bit of an insight as to who you are, what you do, and I guess we'll go from there. Uh,
3: so I have been a football coach and in some way, shape or form for over 10 years. Uh, not just football, futsal as well, Be chucked in there. Um, worked for various organisations currently involved with Brentford uh, in the community trust, uh, but probably get most asked onto podcasts and things because I've written three books, two of them on 3v3 and most recently on the principles of play.
2: Awesome. Awesome. So yeah, we've been quite busy. Um, as you said, then you've written three books. Now we, we actually met, I guess, a little over 10 years ago, maybe. Um,
3: back near the beginning of, of both
2: our journeys I yeah, guess, yeah. pretty much um, we were doing some after school clubs and you know a lot, a lot has changed since then you know you've gone in your direction I've gone in mine so maybe just take us for a, for a brief insight as to what that's looked like for you over the last 10 years you talked at the moment you know you're writing you're writing a couple of books I know you've just finished the Masters yourself um, but there's probably been a lot in between I'm sure
3: yeah I mean uh, of course Um I, I guess I just started out because I wanted to get involved. I wanted in my arrogant way to try and help English football because I thought that I could. And as a I I had no coaching experience. I had a, a very limited schoolboy playing experience, stopped playing, played some grassroots again in my mid-20s, and that was it but I always studied the game and I just thought I want to, want to get involved and um, volunteered at a local grassroots club, did my level one, very, very quickly did my level two. Uh, I was fortunate, but I was working with Rachel Yankee at the time. She, it was her, her grassroots project. And she asked me if I wanted to, oh, can you, can you come and do this session for me? Can you come and do this session for me? And then it started adding up. And I'm doing a few hours each day, two or three hours each day. Start looking, well, is there anything else around? Start working for various different people and just slowly, slowly builds from there. Um, during that time, did various other courses. Then I moved to, to Brentford about five and a half, six years ago now. Did the foot sale course, uh, the pilot ua for b started doing tutoring with the FA there, delivering the level ones and occasionally helping on the level twos as well. The foot sale, wrote the book, wrote the next book, did the masters and then wrote another book. And that's, that's basically it in a nutshell. But it's from quite a small step things started to grow and um, I actually recently had a conversation with with a, a new coach who was looking for more hours and expressing their their frustration that at the moment there's only a certain amount of hours available and like, this is how it starts this is how it starts for everyone uh, I'm, I'm out for for four or five hours today and I'm only really doing a couple of hours of coaching yeah yeah that's what happens and then you do that well and they offer you another one and then you do that well and then you get oh there's a two hour session so it all just starts to link together but it does take a while it does take time but before you know it you're 10 years deep
2: spot on like you know I'm sometimes I sit back and think to myself right I actually started coaching more than 10 years ago but like, it's, it's it's been a whirlwind and you know you talked there about your journey so you know we've gone in different directions with our journeys um you've obviously decided to not pursue the UEFA B in football as yet which you obviously made, made you know made point of earlier what was it about foot in particular that grasped your attention um and
3: so it it was it was curiosity and opportunity. I, I first learned of Futsal when Juninho was playing at Middlesbrough. That's when I first heard of it. And then through reading lots and lots of things, it would crop up from time to time, especially in connection with the Brazilian and South American players. And I decided to oh look there's a there's a course oh it's only down the road let's go and do it and it happened to be with someone who i had done some other courses with I mentioned that I was thinking about doing it and someone who I was on my level uh level three my youth award level three um on they said oh yeah I'm thinking about doing this so like great okay let's go do it that was introduction to foot We got there, and similar to what's happened recently, it's like, oh, by the way, guys, introduction to foot sale, that's now foot sale level one. So I was level one qualified before I realized. Then I spoke to my friend who went on the course with me, and the chat was kind of like, never been to St. George's Park. Have you been to St. George's Park? No, I haven't. Foot sale level two is there. Do you fancy doing it? So we then went and did sale Level 2. Curiosity, but also... Oh, let's go to St. George's. So I'm now Level 2 qualified. A few months later, I get an email from the FA. We're launching the pilot sale UA for B. Are you interested? Um, okay, great. Let's do it. So I've kind of stumbled into it just through curiosity and opportunity and part of the criteria for the for salue for b to start off with was the youth award for the level three and that which quite a few of the people who went on the course didn't actually have so i think i was asked to go on because i had all of the paperwork in place by really didn't have any footsal experience. I was fortunate that there that uh, Louis Melville, who's been involved in footsal for a very long time and at the time was working with Brentford, was also involved in my grassroots club. So I had a chat with him and he went, do it. He was doing the course as well. And I was a, offered some work by him with Brentford. That's how I first got involved with Brentford. start doing some futsal coaching there so fortune and opportunity and curiosity added together took me down this this route it's kind of closed off a little bit recently because an indoor sport and covid things don't necessarily go particularly well together there so futsal's really suffered with that um and also what's happened with the, the courses through the FA. So I was in a position where I was delivering level one and sometimes level twos. With those off the table, my foot cell diet has been quite limited for the last year and a half, maybe a bit longer.
4: Mm.
2: No, I totally, totally appreciate that. I guess my first question would be is for for you then, what would you say are, you know, we spoke a little bit about this in terms of the course content. What would you say are the major differences for, between futsal and football and, and coaches that are considering all right? let me look into this what would you say the benefits for them especially if they, they consider themselves as football coaches how do you feel that the qualification or going down the path for understanding more about the futsal game can help them in their coaching football?
3: I found futsal level one delivering it as a tutor really interesting because I would get such a variety of people in front of me. Like football level one, people come in and they're kind of all on the same, in the same place, mostly grassroots coaches, just starting off, et cetera, et cetera. Foot is very different. You've got some of that, but you also got a license coaches, A-licensed football coaches on a level one course and you got experienced futsal players who were coming just because they had to have that qualification. So it put you in a sometimes can be quite a challenging position where their futsal experience as a level one coach was greater than mine, even though on paper I had the better, the better qualification but well, there's no better qualification than actually having played it and coached it. But it trumps me. So I have then utilized one to help the others, not challenge, not go, no, 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 just go, right. You know what you're talking about. Let's tap into that. Let's use this as an opportunity. So I found that really, really interesting. As for the benefits. Well, small sided games as one of my, big areas of interest and dare say specialism. cell is one of those. So we have all the time and space challenges that come with small-sided games, opportunities for increased touches and decision-making, hopefully, depending on what is coming from the coach, maybe. Um, And then just the feel and the speed of the game. And when you're delivering the level one, one of the big things is to get people on the court and play it. Because if you show people video, and I remember showing it to my dad, because uh, he didn't know what it was, and him saying, five aside, Well, Well, least is five aside, but the addition of the, the ball... The surface, the types of goal make the game faster and it has a different feel to it than normal five-a-side. And once you've played it, you you get it. But you don't get it until you've played it.
2: Yeah, no, I, t- I totally agree. I, I remember I'm thinking going back to maybe 2000 and, I don't know, early, at least eight years ago, I actually played in a futsal tournament. Um, I was up in Birmingham somewhere. Uh, I think it was and, and, and honestly playing in that game you play in the game, it, is a, it is a very different game but like you said a lot of people look at it and just say right this is just five-a-side or um, you know if we stay, take a few moments back you know it is, a, it is a form of a small-sided game so obviously that's something that you're quite passionate about in terms of small-sided games you really you know you, t- tell me where did that come from?
3: Where's it come from? That's a great question so I'm not quite sure where that started um, i mean the first time i started doing any coaching but apart from the level one um, resources the first thing i remember getting handed was 64 small sided games by michael Beale. and i remember sitting and going through it and going Oh, these look interesting, these look useful. I'm not sure I quite understood how important and useful they actually were until a bit later when I then revisited them. And then small side games play a part in your level two because you have to deliver to five or six aside um, in order to deliver the session, or they did. 10 plus years ago anyway so i I quite enjoyed that part of it then came actually going and coaching but the difficulty with being on a coaching course is that you then are coaching not for your players but you're coaching for yourself so you are essentially using each session as a practice run for what you're then going to go and deliver on your assessment <clears throat> excuse me so that meant stop stand still and I could hear it I could see it these grassroots kids going oh why do you stop to-? every time why do you start to I'm trying to help you. I wasn't really trying to help them. I was trying to help me. Yes, I was trying to help them through developing them as players, but contextually, they didn't care. They wanted to play. So the solution was play small-sided games, wrap the learning up within the environment that they're existing within, so if I don't stop them, they will still have had a problem to solve something that relates tactically, hopefully, to the game, or at least helps to expand their understanding of game play, then I don't need to, it doesn't need to be about me getting involved. Coaching is about them, them playing and learning from the game rather than what I can pour into their empty minds and we know their minds aren't empty but sometimes people seem to think in learning but that's what we do so that is how my small-sided games focus developed.
2: Uh, It's quite interesting obviously if we go back a few moments you talked there about your your, your, you know you're receiving a book of 64 small-sided games by Michael Bill now it's probably, I mean, on this podcast we've got a range of different listeners. Some people who have got, like you said, you know, experienced coaches with A licenses and whatnot, all the way to beginner coaches who are just starting their journeys. Now, it's probably going to be a few of those thinking, "Well, how the hell do you get sixty-four different small-sided games? How many versions of the game can you create?" Um, which is a very valid question for them. So maybe, maybe just give a bit of insight in terms of what you mean by. Having, this, having a small-sided game, which obviously is something that they're going to get, they're going to obviously get their game time with, but how you might manipulate that to reach some of the outcomes that you might be looking at?
3: So, there are certain key things that you can manipulate. Um, first one would be the number, let's go over the number of players. Okay, so we can... Let the number of players who come to training we, can, we could let that dictate how many we play per side. We could. But let's say I get let's say I get 18 players. I've deliberately chosen a number that's divisible by three, by the way. Um, so we get 18. Okay? If they are 18, 18-year-olds. 18 we we could be fine playing a 9v9. It's a reduced numbers game. I wouldn't call it a small-sided game. It's it's a medium-sided game, 9v9, which will be useful. But we could also say, well, yeah, maybe we want that for the end when we're working on something specific. We're working on something tactical, but we want to build into that. So we'll play 3v3s. We'll play three 3v3s three to get them active because the intensity is quite high, smaller playing areas, so we'll get more touches, and they may also feel that they can express themselves more. So rather than allowing the number, the 18, that number of 18 to dictate how many side we play, we then take that and we break it down. If I've got 18. Eight-year-olds, I won't play nine v nine for well various reasons. First of all, nine v nine isn't relevant to them. They don't play nine v nine. I hope they never play nine. No one plays nine v nine with them anyway. Um, we want to increase their number of interactions with the ball. We want to increase their decision making and. We also don't want to create a situation where someone gets lost, doesn't touch the ball. Or maybe if it's a grassroots environment and they are a bit 50-50 about being there because their parents grab them there or something, an opportunity where they can hide. So we're taking our larger number and breaking it down into various combinations. I've just said 3v3 because obviously I'm biased, um, but you could do it in other ways. You could have you could have two 4v4s and, two, and a 4v4 and a 5v5, whatever you want to do, just to increase those interactions and those opportunities. So that's the first thing, the way we'll that we can manipulate the small side of the game. Let's take a 3v3 where there are a dominant trio. We might then play four versus two. It might challenge with those two, and help the other three. Or we could then manipulate the numbers to help the theme of, of our overall section or segment of work. We could be looking at over. Try can we attack with overloads? Okay, so let's play four versus two to start off with. Someone's got an overload. How does that then impact what they're doing? So the manipulation of the numbers is the first port of call, I think. Um, Adding in magic men and things like that. So when you start adding in a magic man or a joker or whatever name, I heard some really interesting names from this extra player over, over the years we're again manipulating the practice of the numbers so a team is overloaded when attacking. Take the concept of having additional players. We can remove the goals from the equation, put target players on the ends or on the sides, and then practicing movement, passing, etc. becomes more important because the objective of the game revolves around the passing skill. And sometimes players become fixated with scoring goals, especially young players, which is fine. But sometimes that's not the right challenge or we need a different challenge or just need some variety. So manipulation of the target is another aspect. Remove the goals. Have target players, one target player, two target players. Remove target players. Play an end zone how do we get into an end zone? Well, it could be a pass, but then it could be a dribble. So by using an end zone instead of a target, we might be encouraging our players to dribble more. Or it could be that we're encouraging them to play a different type of pass, and we're encouraging players to run forward to receive rather than receive defeat. Yeah. So lots, lots and lots in there
2: definitely I think you know the two key questions that pop up for me is one um what's the relevance for you in terms of driving towards a 3v3 specifically as opposed to maybe a specifically a 4v4 or 5 5 you're, you're quite a big advocate of a 3v3 in particular um and second question um how do you how do you how do you look at it when you kind of try and balance up if you like the realism of what will occur in your 3v3 to that might might occur in a real game situation now obviously there is going to be times on the pitch where the situation naturally will look like a 3v3 or or there are a smaller compartment or a bigger a bigger piece if you like um however Why 3v3? Why? why?
3: Yeah. um, Perfectly reasonable question. I've been asked it many times. And I do say in both the, the 3v3 books, while I am giving ideas and advocating the use of 3v3, I'm not telling people to not use other formats. Far from it. I do believe that 3v3 or or 4v4 are more relevant at the younger ages. I'd say up to under nine, you could probably just play them. As the game gets bigger and their, uh, their picture gets bigger, they will need to experience those formats too. So at that point, I get asked, well, why, why, why are you doing 3v3 with smaller players, like with older ages, when they're playing on a, on a bigger pitch? And I, I would say that it's a, it's a portion of their session now. Rather than um, being predominantly their session, it's a small portion of their session because you have the increased touches. And however old the players are, you need that. You need that technical aspect, but still linked with high levels of decision-making. Uh, technically, to get the most touches possible, one versus zero. All the touches in the world, but it's lacking a certain level of context. Doesn't mean it's not useful, because it is. But it can't ex- just, you can't just do that you'll become very good at one versus zero. So we play one versus one. Fantastic. But I can't pass the ball. Still hugely important. If I was going to advocate anything aside from 3v3, I'd probably advocate 1v1. Because we, I want to see players who have that ability.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think it's quite interesting that you, you say that, I mean, why, why I mention that is there's a lot of coaches now, especially with with the you know with the whole COVID thing and everything's happening, we've almost seen this massive surge of one-to-one coaches, right? Um, and I often think, okay, well, what we'll makes sure you a one-to-one coach other than the fact that you're literally doing it one-to-one? How, uh, uh, how have you established that you are a, a coach that, that works one-to-one other than literally what it is? Um, and I would actually... That, that point that you've made there, that one versus zero. Yes, as many touches as you want, but I actually do, I feel from my perspective, you actually can give that context. Um, and this is where, in my opinion, um, a lot of coaches who are doing one to one traditionally, the way I see it anyway, um, may be lacking in, in that they literally just focus on the technical elements. Whereas I think, the, although, yes, I think we can both agree that with, with additional, uh, players, whether that be one player or even more, um, we can develop an, a clearer understanding of the context for the players that we're we working with. However, I still do think there's scope for that. Now, one of the challenges, one of the things I would throw at you is what you said a few moments ago, having a Magic Man though. Me personally, I don't use Magic Man at all because for me, as far as I'm they, they don't exist in the game. So why would... Why would I? And I, I mean, other than the convenience of having someone and, and, and managing the numbers, yes, there might be certain circumstances where I might say, well, well, this guy might have, might have specific needs in possession or out of possession. So therefore, I'm going to put him as a magic man to increase the opportunities for that to occur and whatnot. But generally, I, I don't, I don't, I don't understand the use of it.
3: I generally, I, I, say, I generally agree with that unless it is for specifically for an individual, which it can be, I'd rather play 6v5 than with the Magic Man because you've got an overload. Rather than, Okay, both teams can have an overload with the Magic Man, but, well, you've got a challenge with a team of five. You've got a, team, you've got a challenge with a team of six. Just swap the player later. It can work. Uh, Otherwise, the, the magic player or magic players is in a game is something. I think once you put them in a game, is it still a game? Is it a practice?
2: So, um, funny enough, that was going to be my next question is like, you know, well, uh, someone would argue that a lot of the manipulations that you talked about earlier were well, actually just, when does it become a game? And when does it now turn from a game to a practice or vice versa? Or is a practice just a, a, anything you do and it just happens to be oh, a game or not? That's
3: a, is is it all practice? I mean, I've heard so that there's always that question about realism. And it's been asked, oh, that's unrealistic. Uh, okay. How far do we take unrealistic? Because unless what's what's realistic, really? for football surely the only thing that's realistic is 11
2: v 11 and i guess the way i would phrase it is is it something that so if i was doing a session as an example is what's happening in my session coming up the way it would in a game so as an example um you've got the, the age I'll use a very basic age old Rondo where you've got two players in the middle and you've got ten players around the outside you're not going yeah. to see that in that in that manner in a game so for yeah. me, that is a clear representation of what is unrealistic you're also not going to see and it's not impossible to see but it's not. you're not commonly going to see a situation where players are just moving the ball in a circle with no end outcome directional um, practice yeah exactly so for me it has to be directional so if it's not directional again unless there's a specific pattern of play that you're working on and this is a small phase of that larger pattern if you like um i don't understand i mean I, i maybe i did this in my naivety when i when i was younger but now i can't fathom the idea of having a practice that isn't directional anymore
3: Well, it's funny, I watched someone deliver a
0: multi-directional practice recently, I I get it. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers,
1: every time
0: and if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6 limited time only price and participation may vary cannot be combined with any other offer single item at regular price Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
3: I do get the use of it because if we're trying to get players to look all around the pitch and play in various directions I, I can if that was a specific use of it yeah that was fine I don't think it was for the people who were doing it yeah Especially when they start talking to the people they're coaching and saying about moving up the pitch.
4: Mm.
3: And I just. (laughs) You've got players in the corners you're trying to pick out. You can pass to any corner player. So which way is up? Have they really thought about that? Or was it just, I know what I'll do. I'll put some players in corners and we can pass balls to them? Yeah. Well, that's okay. Have the players in one at one end in those two corners wearing the same colored bibs as one team, and have the players in the other end having the same colored bibs as the other team. And then you've got targets and you're playing yeah. forward, and they, they're representative of white players, perhaps.
2: Anyway, I, I, think I think it's a great point. It, 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 again, so for me is all right. Well, in the small sided game context, and I'll share, just to share another experience. I mean, I'm a massive advocate of one v one and two v two, because of the amount of time you get to spend on the ball, and because of the amount of. If we look at the game, largely when you're on in possession of the ball, you're you're always going to be faced up by someone at least, more often than not.
3: Bring it back to to the two v two. So 2v2 was part of of the reason why I ended up in 3v3.
4: Because
3: Hmm. I was somewhat dissatisfied with what was available in 2v2. Yeah. Although I'm not saying 2v2 hasn't got a place, because it has. Especially in futsal. Futsal is massive on 2v2 because you literally have to work on those movements between pairs of players. But... There's only a certain amount of that you could get out of it.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. And I think. It with,
3: shouldn't have the
2: done. No, I was just going to say. I think with the three v three, I think that's when you, I think the three v three is only the, the base or the minimum required for you to really start to expose some of the principles of play. Yeah, like, that was it. So. Um, whether that be in possession or out of possession. Yeah, you know, We talk about when, you know, when we're out of position, we want a player to press, we want a player to cover, we want a player to balance. Well, it's never going to happen. Well, it could, in theory, happen 2v2, but um, at least in the way I've understood the principles and the way, that it, the way that the game should operate, it won't be as fluid as it would be in, in a 3v3 as, uh, in comparison to 2v2. And when you're in possession you're now looking at maybe rotations. Well, actually, there's not much of a rotation going on in possession because I'm on the ball and it's a 2v2. So um, there could be rotation in a 3v3 from the other players or whatever that might look like. Or I might dribble into one area and he might pull out, whatever that might look like. But I think 3v3 at its very basic level is probably the first stage for me where you can actually really start to um, properly embed some of the principles.
3: The 2v2 lacked layers. Mm. Lacked angles. Um, it was flat. 2v2 was basically flat. It was because the connection between the players could only be a flat line. So adding the third player, suddenly your triangle is a exactly. Fundamental shape for the game of football. I think probably the most fundamental shape of the game of football. The next would be a diamond. Or square, but of course, that's just two triangles.
2: Exactly, I was about to say that.
3: (laughs) So, it's the the, the fundamental is a triangle plus other triangles. Can't get that in 2v2, can get that in 3v3. So, ideas of support, balance, all those core concepts. (laughs) they could come out in three versus three, obviously within certain limitations, but essentially the reason for 3v3 was it was the smallest possible number to get the principles and the core elements of gameplay with the least sacrifice, Mm. the number of touches per individual. You go to 4v4, then you're starting to take away some of those touches, and is what you gain worth it? Mm. That's, that was the question. Is it worth it? Yeah. Some people would say yes. For certain ages, if it was 4v4 under 18 in their, as part of their practice, you know it's going to be fine. If you can do two 3v3s with your under-8s...
2: Yeah, rather than a 6v6, something like that.
3: Yeah, do it, because you'll get you'll them get their touches. And no, I, still I agree. The fundamental understanding of the game and the game.
2: I, I completely agree. I mean, even funny enough, even on a match day, if I've got enough players for it, I'll have my sub playing a 3v3 on the side. While while they're waiting to come on or whatnot, it's like you know, I think I think I think it is a great a great tool. Um, but like I said, there a lot of people would challenge it and say, well, again, why three v three? And you, obviously, you've explained there some of the benefits that you feel there are for it, um, which I totally agree with. Um, at what stage do you think it should start evolving? So obviously, you've mentioned there very um, that an eight a four before might come into place at eighteen potentially. But I, you know, I, I maybe... said
3: eighteen as an example. Yeah, as an I example. Of I wouldn't say it would come in then. Um, if we're so, I'm I'm really trying to advocate three v three as a game day experience for young players. I've done five v five so many times with under sevens and under eights, beginners, youngsters, and I remember doing a warm up with one group. And we did it as a... We just played a a mini game in the penalty area. And I looked at it and went, geez, this is big enough for them. Never mind playing in a half. This whole pitch for these little guys, 5v5, they're going to be so lost. Mm. And they were. So I would advocate for 3v3 under seven, under eight. Under nine, I think we probably play 5v5. I think at under nine, they're definitely ready for 5v5. I, under, some under eights will be, but not all. But that's always the way when it's that age when yeah. you're about to move up. Like under 13 is the great one. There are a lot of players who are ready for 11v11 at under 13 but then there's a huge number who are not ready for 11 v 11 and not ready for that. So for Never mind a full-size 11 v 11, the, the three-quarter or two-thirds or however, whatever scale it is, mm. 11 aside, side that they're meant to go to. It's just those additional spaces plus the additional numbers. Mm. We want things to be challenging, but when some for some people, that challenge is so challenging that they don't want to face it. They want to drop out because the enjoyment
2: yeah. is gone. No, I, I feel that. So I guess right. so you know, free are free advocate talk us to so talk talk us through your books. Since so what what are your books that talk about? You know, uh, for anyone that hasn't maybe come across the content yet or come across any of your work before, your free so
3: the two, two freebie free books essentially do what we're just talking about now, explaining why we've a little bit of um, scientific evidence chucked in there, but with lots of ideas for practices and ways to to do it. Um, And also not just 3v3 games in there, but 3v3 or six-player practices. So if coaches have already... Say they've got their set up to go with their, their 3v3s, they can do a practice to build into it or they can play 3v3 stop, do a little practice go back in without having to mess around too much with the setup and the numbers
0: mm.
3: and then there's a few in there where I, I cheat I say I, I'm cheating I'm adding players I'm adding players on the outside for certain reasons I'm adding goalkeepers, 3v3 goalkeepers because people might have a what do you do with them?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I think it's fair point.
3: Um, if you want to stick with the, the ethos, have them outside. Or just, yes, you, of course you can just play 4v4, we said that, but then you might use the 3v3 idea and expand it by using targets, using outside players and mm. other things for technical and tactical purposes. So that's in there. And, The point of trying to make as many types of game as possible is to try and cover the principles of play. So chapter one of the most recent book digs into what the principles are and universal. For me, there's a difference between the individual principles of a specific coach, let's say Pep, and the fundamental principles of playing the game of football. Mm. And you have to figure out what the fundamental principles are. So we have those traditional principles that have been presented by the FA for years, many, many years. I don't know when they were last looked at, so I tried to have a look at them. But we've also got to look at principles from other games because football is an invasion game. So it must have shared characteristics with other invasion games.
4: Mm, mm.
3: And the shared characteristics are generally... If at a basic level, shared characteristics are score, don't let the other team score. Yeah. And even then, you will face situations where score isn't actually a part of the equation. So arguably for invasion games, the only principle that is always in play is don't let them score. Because if we scored a couple, we might not be worried about scoring anymore. Other than that, go forward. is fundamental across invasion games. Even a game where the rules don't allow you to pass forward rugby, you still need to go forward. Otherwise, we're trying to score from range, from some ridiculous ranges. We've got to give ourselves a chance to play. So fundamentally go forward, stop them going forward. Then it becomes about how we go forward and how we stop them going forward. These things can can come out in the 3v3, but they can also come out in other practices.
2: I think it's It's a great point. I think for me, the way way I look at it is this... um it's just talking about going forward funny enough and this is when i you i'm know, similar to yourself i've done some tutoring i've been working across you know various courses over the last few years myself um and i see a lot of coaches putting on practices where they're literally just maintaining possession my my first question is maintaining possession okay Like for what for what purpose to what end because at some point you want to be able to do something with it and this is the bit that they uh, quite often seem to just uh i want to say ignore but maybe don't even consider that actually the there is actually an goal here and it's not just to keep possession
3: i've got i've got two pet hates and i will hate is a strong word but i'm going to use it because i really do hate it so my first one because I'm a dribbling advocate, is touch limits, two touch only. Like, well, you've killed my dribblers. You've absolutely killed them. And also, it's, the, the issue isn't how many touches you take, the issue is how quickly you move the ball. So I could take two touches, but I could take a minute over it.
2: Literally, the conversation I was having with someone yesterday, I went to watch a session yesterday, and the guy said, "Right, I, I need your help here I'm trying to get them to move the ball quicker. All right, so what, 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 you, what do you think you should be doing? Well, i put I already put them on two touches, so what, how's that going to help them? Because if they have a bad first touch, they're now having to take longer with the second touch to make things right. However, if you don't give them a, a touch limit, and you just say, right, how quick can we move this ball? They're going to work out their own ways in which to do it. And then you can have a review with them and assess with them as to whether those ways are currently working to, in line with where you want them to be. Um. You don't have to tell them how to do it. You don't have to tell them what to do. You just have to direct them around what, you, what you're what you hoping to see and the reasons as to why that might be beneficial for them.
3: They, they, they might... Right. Why do they not move the ball quickly? Well, it could be there's absolutely no movement. So let's fix that. It could be they don't see the opportunities to play. So let's look at that. It's not the number of touches. So... That's pet hate number one. Pet hate number two, more linked to what you just done or what we were talking about beforehand, sorry. Five passes before you can score a play forward. Why? If I'm playing a game and the ball has come to... Two of my players are 50-50, the ball's come to me and I can go bang, I can play straight in. Sorry, I haven't made five passes yet.
2: (laughs) It's, it's it's crazy. It's the same example, you know. I, you know I, and a prime example I give is right. You got Pep Guardiola. Where everyone knows how Pep wants his teams to play, right? But if you go back a few years, FA Cup final, Man City versus Arsenal had Arsenal. try over for Aguero.
3: <laughs>
2: but what it was that deal. They went out. They wanted to play the possession based football. Arsenal oppressed them, and City just said, "Well, we need to score, so we're just going to do it this way instead." And that, that was it. It was simple as that. And as soon as they did that, Arsenal then you know, retreated and then, and then they started playing out from the back again. But the point is, they're, they're maintaining possession not for the sake of maintaining possession. So when I hear coaches tell me, oh, yeah, I want to play like Man City, you want to play like this, to play that. Like, well, yeah, but you've got to understand the reason as to why they're doing that. Man City aren't just holding onto the ball for the sake of holding onto the ball. They're holding onto the ball to potentially tease someone out of the opposition shape to create those little gaps and those little pockets in between. Where they can now just bounce it around.
3: You can hold on to the to the ball for the sake of holding on to the ball. If you're three nil up,
2: exactly. 10 minutes to go. And but, that's... But even then, you could be three nil up and ten minutes to go. At some point, you're going to maintain possession to the point where actually now there's an opening to go forward again. Yeah, you just or might. You, not be you'll, as...
3: you'll establish a better position or better foundation to play it, from.
2: Exactly. And I and I think I think that yeah, it, that's one of you know if you talk about pet hate, that's one of my players. Like, well, why are you doing that? Don't just do it because you've seen someone else do it. Do it because there's actually a purpose behind it for you and your players. Um, and you know, it's interesting because obviously everyone's going to have different views on it. But you know, coming back to yourself now, then you know you, you've you've been pushing this agenda, if if that's one way of describing it, uh, for the for the for the benefits of small sided games in 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 in, in training. And generally, I guess. What
4: do you feel that maybe on the coach education course there should be more emphasis on small sided games? Then. I'd love to see it. I'd
3: love to see it. And um, there's a uh, grassroots. There's a huge, huge benefit to doing small sided games. Mm. And it, I agree. It, take take away technical, tactical aspects of it, and just think about the context of those grassroots kids. Why are they there? They're there to play football. So if you play small-sided games, you've got an hour and a half session, you play over and out. say 75% of your session is, is small-sided games, those kids are going to go home happy. They might, and I have had this, they might say, are we going to play a big game? Uh, do you realise how big a big game actually is going to be? There's 20 of you here. You're eight. Or the, last, the other week, it was, uh, there was actually there were two coaches. We had 25. Are we going to play a big game? Like, you want to play 13 versus 12? Okay. I mean, someone is going to say, but that's what we used to do on the playground and it is true that it is what we used to do on the playground but there does come a point where come on it's a little bit it's a, that's a little bit silly on the silly side of things but if you play a number of small games they're all going to be active they're all going to be involved and they will have played and they if you I, I love starting with a 3v3 mm. well, I, I start with however many have arrived my arrival activity is there's two goals Go on, there's play. two of you yeah Go and play. Another one's arrived. Right, two versus one. Who's winning? Or who wants, Who oh, I want to be on his team, actually. All right, fine. Next player in, two versus two. Build it up, build it up. Okay, now it's a bit crowded on there. Let's go and let's start. There's another one here. Let's put some more cones down. We'll play two of them. And then suddenly your session started. Now I could say, okay, I'm going to drop a rule in here. And now we're into it. We're actually into the session. I haven't really got, done anything.
4: Yeah.
3: And then I can stop, step away, and we can go to some ball manipulation for a bit or yeah. some 1v1s or however, however you want to structure it. Mm. But if, if you do that in your grassroots session and they come to you and they go, when are we going to play a game? Do you remember the beginning?
2: Sh- you know what? It's interesting. I think that's a great point. I went down to watch a coach a few months back um, and I was just supporting in some of the delivery as well. And the coach that usually leads the group comes to me about 10... I haven't done no games at this point. I've just done loads of practices which are just, I guess, just running. Um, now, you made a great point. Players come because they want to play my question is always do they actually want to play so is it, do they want to play or do they want to play games specifically now my thing is they just want to play and then i then then i go on to the do they even want to play or do they want to play because of the emotion it gives them so i then start to focus on that i think right how can i invoke more of those emotions within my session so mm-hmm. I was delivering the session. Now we're getting about ten minutes. To the end. He said, "Oh, well, we haven't. Are we going to move into a game now?" So, no, we're not. We're not going to move into a game. You tell me why do they need a game at this point? They're enjoying what they're doing. There's plenty of development going on. Um, I don't need a game. This is doing its job for me. They're enjoying it. I'm seeing development. I don't need anything else. They don't need anything else. Now, traditionally, because they're used to and they're conditioned to playing a game at the end of their session, they might still ask for it, but. They'll ask for it more from a perspective. Of, oh, so when are we going to play a game? Not because they're looking to play the game, but because that's what they're used to. Yeah. Now, if a player's yeah, coming yeah, it's, to it's me, it's kind
3: of like, like when when's the main course coming?
2: It, exactly. Well, you don't need it. You've just you've just been you know you've been in a buffet all, all afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> there is no main course. It, you've, you've you've been eating the whole time. So, uh, that's the kind of the way I approach my sessions in the sense that if I find that a player has to come and ask me. Right. When are we going to play a game, rather than are we not playing a game today? Mm. Then I know. Then I know my session hasn't been enjoyable enough. Because if it's are we not playing a game today, then it's this is what we usually do.
4: Yeah.
2: As opposed to, can we play a game? It's not a request. Do you know what I mean? If it comes as a request, then it's almost like okay, they haven't enjoyed this. They're bored now.
4: Exactly. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
3: I was going to say going back jumping back a little bit Magic Man thing there was one other there was one other reason that I did think of that we might use it and that's if the players enjoy it and if it's fun that was the only other thing so but I used to years before coaching I did script writing I did script as as a course Uh, messed around with it never went anywhere but we were taught that when you're writing every scene has to serve a purpose to move the story forward and coaching is quite similar we're trying to move it forward with one exception in writing the one exception was because it's funny so you can justify the existence of a scene for the sake of it just being funny and I think sometimes in coaching we can justify the existence of something because it's enjoyable especially with younger ones but a lot of people will say that and I'll always say hold on don't adults deserve a bit of fun as well
2: I think that's a great point you know I think on that it, it is literally why are we doing this what's the real reason for this and it's because people as much as we want them to develop we want them to enjoy themselves we want, we want to be able to enjoy ourselves. And I think from pretty much most coaches that I know anyway, we get that enjoyment from seeing that our players are enjoying it.
3: We need to want to come back. Exactly. Uh, at, all, at all levels, they want to come back. Um, they'll come back if they're enjoying it. And if they, if they think it's enjoyable, they enjoy being with you the coach which then helps to create stronger foundations stronger links better connectivity so that when you do talk to them about something important they're more likely to listen and you go oh okay yeah all right i'm I'm going to listen to that forming bonds i think probably the last five to ten years of of coaching, of coach research have really, really been throwing up, well it's all about the bonds it's all yeah. about the connection yeah. you, can, you can have these wonderful practice designs that look amazing and the players are switched off and they've not, they not picked up anything or you can just go right we're doing a small sided game we're doing some small sided games and then you talk to each individual and you go what do you need what, what do you think? How, how can we help you?
2: Mm.
3: And you've done your set up. You've
2: done nothing. You've done nothing. 100%. It, it, sometimes it's as simple as just keeping it in its basic format. You don't need to add any special conditions. You don't need to do this. You don't need that. You just maybe set some challenges with players as individuals within it. And, and, and obviously, the more time you spend with those players and the, you build those relationships, the more likely you're able to understand what they actually need and what the challenges maybe should look like. So yes, yeah, guess-
3: you know if you know if you know them, then you're in a position. If you really know them, you're in a position to then set them challenges. But if you don't know them, they can set their own challenges and help. Uh, there's a, a kid I've been working working with. He's been in my group for probably two seasons now. I noticed something in training, and I talked to him about his, his weaker foot, his left foot, not. Uh, I, I noticed he kept checking back in or he was hesitating to shoot. And I said, like, I think you really need to work with your, your weaker side. And he looked really unhappy. Well, okay. He still looked really unhappy. And at the end, uh, he didn't take that comment particularly well. What was it? And eventually he said to me, "I he, he was, eight. Right? I scored 60 goals last season, 25 with my left foot. I'm like, okay, interesting that you're keeping count, but really interesting that you've taken all of these, you scored all of these goals with your left side, but it does seem still seem to be hesitancy there. I'm like, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it was just today, but we'll keep an eye on it. Okay. Recently, we had a set of fixtures, and he was through on goal, on his left foot, chance to shoot stopped, cut back in, ended up curling it with his right foot and curled it wide. And we spoke afterwards and went, you told well, me you scored yeah. all these goals with your left foot. There was your opportunity. And he then said to me, yeah, I know. I know I cut back onto it. So we've, we've reached an understanding
2: there. And I think that's a great, great example because it, for me, I've always said, right, we can coach the players to the you know, until, 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 until the cows come home. But if they don't understand, or they don't appreciate the observations that we're making, um, in a way that they see as meaningful and impactful for them, it doesn't mean anything. So they need to accept and understand Right? oh, why is coach saying this? I can actually see that I can rationalize for myself. Now, why coach is saying this you've now, basically all you've done is asked the question you've left a seed to, to grow. It's like, oh gosh, you know what? I thought I was doing this. He may well have been doing it all, all the time on his left foot. But well, I mean, in that moment, he's now become conscious of the fact that this is now something that he's, he's basically committed to. Now he's going to hold himself accountable for it.
3: And it, it was, I probably had known him two or three months at that point. Yeah. Now I've known him nearly two years and it's a different thing where he's going
4: yeah
3: "Yeah." arguably you could say I've not done enough to help him in that time maybe but but then if they're not receptive to it I think sometimes with these things you can try and help a player but they're just thinking no when there comes a point when they're open to it once they're open to it then you can really work on it if they're not open to it you're just forcing it it's like it's like like quitting smoking yeah 100% I
2: the one thing I always say as well with players is, and I think this even goes for us as coaches, if they're not aware of the problem that they're facing, the challenges in front of them, they're not going to be able to deal with it. So even if they get to a point where they've started to understand, doesn't necessarily mean they have to all of a sudden be able to overcome it or all of a sudden be able to get the technique right or whatever that might look like, but they understand where the breakdown is. So then they, for me, they're halfway there on the journey of actually getting over it or dealing with it, developing it, solving it, whatever you want, however you wish to look at
3: it. And different players and even different kids think differently. So within the same group, I've got another kid, another really good player, right-footed. He went through a phase where he was so determined to use his left foot that he almost stopped using his right foot. Uh, but that was his choice that was his choice he made that off his own back it's like no i want to work on my left and so he just decided bang 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 and that's him i've got there's another kid in another group who's brilliant at, so we, i use timeouts within the older age group timeout to say right i'm only going to stop your game i've got two timeouts in your game here so i'm only going to stop you twice So I need to make sure it's really worth doing. You've got a timeout per team. So if you want to stop it, this one kid, fantastic. at Using the timeout to then go and correct or try and correct what his team's doing. The only one I've coached who has that understanding. They're all different and they all have their own special understanding of the game.
2: I think, I, think that's a, I think that's a great point. So I guess on a final note then, as we look to wrap up, Pete, you shared a lot of your insights around three you know, small-sided games and why you feel they're beneficial and important for, your, for players in particular, maybe coaches to consider. What would be one key message that you'd want to kind of share with coaches for them to maybe consider in their own journeys?
3: Then said so much for a whole journey. I mean, I think my I find a lot of coaches take it incredibly seriously, which is fine, but almost too seriously. Like it's your it's your job, it's your calling, etc. But then they by taking it seriously, they put pressure on themselves. They put pressure on the players, the kids, just relax. Just relax a bit more. If it doesn't work or something goes wrong, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? Especially, like, okay, if we're talking 11 v 11 adult football, semi-pro, pro, of course, the worst thing that can happen is people start losing their jobs. But very few people are in that situation, especially start and middle of their journeys just just relax more have a bit more fun with it let things happen don't force everything just let it come let it be let the players come on in their own way as well let them you don't have to guide their every movement trust them and you'll enjoy it a lot more you won't get that tight feeling in your chest
2: I think that's a great way to look at it. Uh, Peter, just on a final note then, um, you've got your three books there. I know you're very active on social media, Twitter in particular. Um, so if people did have um, any questions around what we've discussed today or maybe beyond and maybe want to find a little bit more about the work you do, is there somewhere in particular they can get in touch and what when, what means?
3: Yeah, just go to at Peter Prickett, P-R-I-C-K-E-T-T on Twitter. I'm quite open to direct messages, Um, tweet me, DM me if you want, that's all fine, and if you want the books, Developing Skill, Developing Skill 2 and Football's Principles of Play, Amazon, have them well stocked if you're interested, I won't be offended if you're not
2: i'm sure there'll be plenty of uh listeners looking to um pursue something in those in those avenues um but Pete, look, it's been a fantastic conversation today i'm sure that you know I'll, there'll be millions more things that we can probably discuss at this point um i know that there's a lot of debates i've had with people in the past around the benefits and the use of small-sided games and how often they should be used if at all um but maybe that's for another day but Pete, look, thank you again for your time this morning um Hope it was enjoyable for you as much as it was for me. Oh,
3: you're, you're welcome. Thank you very much for asking me on. It was good to chat and good to catch up.
2: Definitely. Take care, Pete. Cheers. Thanks. Bye. Well, There you have it, guys. Another episode of the Coaches Network podcast, where our aim is to bring the world of athlete, talent, and personal development together to just one platform. And you can help us with that mission right now by sharing this episode or any of your favorite episodes with everyone that you can think of. You can tag us in those mentions as well on Instagram at The Coaches Network or on Twitter at The Coaches Network. We look forward to hearing from you. Let us know what you thought about today's episode. And until next time, guys, take care. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.